On the night of November 18th, 1956, an Air Force L-26 Aero Commander, a six-seat twin-engine plane, made its way from Dobbins Air Force Base outside of Atlanta to Bowling Field, south of Washington, D.C. Winds were calm, visibility was good, and the cold, cold water of the Potomac River snaked under the plane as the pilot radioed the tower at Bowling for clearance to land. The plane carried three men, Lieutenant Richard H. Perlick, an instructor pilot at Bowling, who sat in the left crew seat. Behind him was Major Jose Blondet, and at the controls, Major General James C. Seltzer, who began the slow descent to the field. Without warning or apparent cause, both of the plane's engines sputtered and died. Seltzer reported to Bowling that the plane was in trouble and descended toward the dark river where he ditched the plane 600 feet from shore near Fort Washington, about eight miles short of the runway. As the plane sank, Perlick kicked out the side window to escape. The two other men joined him in the water and they started to swim toward the Maryland shore. Perlick eventually made landfall. The others did not. Major Blondet and General Seltzer drowned that night in the river. The next morning, the accident was reported by the Associated Press, the AP, and the International News Service, the INS. The reports made mention of one additional interesting fact. It said, Seltzer, a veteran of 22 years in the Air Force, was named Deputy Director of the Net Evaluation Subcommittee of the National Security Council last July. The INS went further. It said the Air Force identified Seltzer as Deputy Director of the National Security Council's Top Secret Net Evaluation Subcommittee. The Council advises the President on vital security matters. The New York Times, surely ignorant of the purpose of this subcommittee, offered simply Deputy Director of the Net Evaluation Subcommittee of the National Security Council and member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. There were no other details. Thinking back on it, what is really remarkable to me is that the name of what is arguably the most secretive group ever to be spawned by the National Security Council had casually made its way into the public sphere and commanded no further investigation. The Net Evaluation Subcommittee was charged with producing some of the most sensitive analytical research of the Cold War. The NESC, as it turned out, was tasked with quantifying in annual reports something like 
the potential collapse of the United States in nuclear fire, Armageddon. The deputy director of the group had drowned in the Potomac River, and not a single inquiry was made into the nature or purpose of the NESC. In fact, the group was so successful at maintaining its secrecy that the New York Times mentioned it exactly twice in the entirety of the Cold War. The first was the morning after the crash in 1956. The second was on April 12, 1984, in the obituary of General Gerald C. Thomas, who, it said, had been the director of the Net Evaluation Subcommittee of the National Security Council. No additional explanation was given. When most people think of the Cold War, they think, fairly, of the big themes. Capitalism and communism, or the set-piece dramas of the Cuban Missile Crisis, or the fall of the Berlin Wall, or the space race, or the arms race. Maybe they think of cloak and dagger, spies. But behind all of these are the quantitative analysts bringing together everything from military intelligence reports to economic policy to complex mathematical models for radioactive fallout dispersal. They worked from the shadows, at the periphery of the Cold War, in the anterooms and hallways, just beyond the power. And their work rationalized choices that were made. It justified courses of action that were taken. It guided policy. This is the story of one of those groups of quantitative analysts, and it's the story of how, by shining a light on those now mostly declassified annual assessments, we can see just how dangerous the situation had gotten and how quickly it had gotten there. This is the story of the net Evaluation Subcommittee of the National Security Council, the NESC. I am DJ Kinney, and this is the Cold War Vault. What eventually became the Net Evaluation Subcommittee was brought into being in 1953 after James Lay, the Executive Secretary of the National Security Council, called for a serious evaluation of Soviet capabilities to fight a nuclear war. His report on the subject was titled Directive for a Special Evaluation Subcommittee. In it, he envisioned a group that could consider what he called the USSR's net capabilities to inflict direct injury on the United States. 
A little context here is important. After the success of the Manhattan Project, the first atomic bomb, and the end of the Second World War, intelligence analysts envisioned a U.S. monopoly on nuclear weapons for a decade. Wishful thinking added some years to that number. But that monopoly lasted just four years. Possibly due to some idealistic sabotage, and possibly not. The Soviet Union detonated its first atomic bomb on August 29, 1949. This shook the intelligence community, and the United States proceeded with all possible haste to build a bigger bomb. So the first thermonuclear burn was just an experiment. It was named George and it was part of Operation Greenhouse in 1951. The world's first real hydrogen bomb, the H-bomb, the thermonuclear bomb, the super, all names for the same thing and subjects for another episode, was Ivy Mike. Operation Ivy shot Mike on November 1st, 1952. Except it wasn't a bomb. It was an 82-ton, cryogenically cooled, three-sided warehouse on a tiny Pacific island. In any case, it worked, and the world was delivered into the thermonuclear age, and the United States was in the driver's seat. Except it wasn't. On August 12, 1953, less than a year later, the Soviet Union tested its own thermonuclear device. Opinions varied on the technical matters. Old Manhattan Project physicists said it didn't rise to the standards of a real hydrogen bomb because only 20% of its yield had come from fusion. But I wonder if that really matters. When the yield was 400 kilotons, and it was aircraft deliverable. This changed things in Washington. The Soviets were better at this than they'd been given credit for. A real and honest assessment of the Soviet capability needed to be made as soon as possible. That brings us back to the net assessment. NSC Directive 140 brought it to life. The group was tasked with covering all possible types of attack, including direct military, clandestine, and sabotage. Four months later, the results were in. The reports, while definitely serious and not something to be consumed before bedtime, presented an overall picture of a winnable war. Here's a sample. Under the subheading of overall damage to the United States, the subcommittee wrote, we believe that overall damage to the United States would not be such as to prevent the delivery of a powerful initial retaliatory atomic air attack, the continuation of the air offensive and the successful prosecution of the war. 
In terms of human life, the report said that optimum bomb placement on population targets could produce a maximum of 9 million casualties in 1953. Only about half of those casualties would die as a result. But the report qualified this by saying that the actual casualties might be only 50% of that. There was just no way to know. To create a baseline here, this means that an all-out U.S.-USSR nuclear-armed conflict might well result in just 2.25 million deaths in 1953, and slightly more than 3 million deaths if the war were to happen in 1955. That's less than the population of 1950s New York City, just 2% of the entire U.S. population. The industrial numbers were even better. Damage to factories wouldn't destroy the ability of any industry to keep producing for the war effort, so the report assumes that the economy would just keep pumping out cars and planes and tanks and poodle skirts. If all of this wasn't enough to make a preemptive attack on the Soviet Union look very attractive to war planners, the report also tossed in a few dire assessments of the Soviet military machine. The major mode of attack would be one-way missions, which would first have to be pitched and sold to the flight crews, and which would presumably end with bailout into a hostile nuclear war zone, suicide or both, or possibly landing on fumes in Mexico, though it's never made clear how the Mexicans might feel about this. 20% of the bombers initially launched would return to base before dropping their bombs. A cynical assessment of Soviet air power shared by everyone in the room listening to the presentation of the report that day. President Eisenhower himself wondered whether the net assessment group had been too generous, saying that the Soviet flyers had an obvious inferiority and even incompetence in the navigation of planes at long ranges. That's a quote. The president pointed out that anyone who had ever ridden with Soviet pilots could vouch for this incompetence, and there was laughter around the table. Full of optimism, Ike closed out the meeting on a self-congratulatory note. He said, The Russians must be scared as hell. Nineteen fifty-four came around, and the Net Assessment Group distributed another report, with estimates through 1957. One-way suicide missions were again assumed to be the plan, owing largely to the shorter range of the aging Soviet planes and their inability to refuel mid-air. It's important to remember that there were no intercontinental ballistic missiles in 1954. So warning times were still on a scale of hours. That was plenty of time to sound air raid alerts and take cover or evacuate. Because of the warning time, casualties stayed low. 
civil defense had also been gearing up in the United States under the Federal Civil Defense Administration, and the assessment took this into account as well. Nuclear war wasn't just survivable in 1954. It still seemed winnable. And with the exception of a couple of million unfortunates, the U.S. would prevail. But this kind of positivity wouldn't last. There's a line in the 1954 report that hinted at the dark days ahead. It said that, quote, Casualties in this evaluation include only those resulting from blast, heat, and initial nuclear radiation. This is, of course, unrealistic. Fallout from these bursts might greatly increase the casualty totals. End quote. And there it is. The silent, lingering effect that would change all of the later thinking on nuclear war. Up to that point, war planners, government officials, and civil defense recommendations had all treated lingering radiation with a sort of nonchalance. What you couldn't see couldn't kill you, at least not after the first few minutes. But this changed with a new kind of weapon, the hydrogen bomb I mentioned before. Ironically, thermonuclear weapons, these fusion bombs, are technically cleaner than fission bombs like the ones used at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But they're also much, much bigger. So if they go off close to the surface, they can create immense amounts of fallout that can cover huge swaths of territory. In fact, in March 1954, the Bravo test of Operation Castle accidentally exceeded its expected output by two and a half times, 15 megatons. That's 15 million equivalent tons of TNT. Fallout was atrocious and rained down over Micronesian islands, infamously contaminating a Japanese fishing vessel, killing one crew member. It caused an international incident that began to consolidate anti-nuclear sentiment, and it suggested strongly to planners in the Pentagon that perhaps this poorly understood fallout problem was something that needed to be, well, better understood. In 1955, Eisenhower was presented with a report titled Meeting the Threat of Surprise Attack. This is usually called the Killian Report, and it made the NESC's assessments look positively positive by comparison. The Killian Report envisioned a very near future in which the United States no longer enjoyed its nuclear supremacy, and the outlook for survival of the country in a nuclear war was bleak. Something in Eisenhower changed. 
In the records of meetings and briefings that touched on the subject in 1955, Eisenhower is a man who had started to rethink his confidence in the ability of the U.S. to fight a war with nuclear weapons. At least its ability to fight one that didn't end with unacceptable casualties and the collapse of the nation. At the 257th meeting of the National Security Council, Eisenhower was curious about the sustainability of this new arms race. He said that he wanted to see some social scientists brought into the business of security planning to study, in his words, how long civilization could take these weapons. He was bothered by the new intercontinental ballistic missile program, and especially by the Soviet advances in that area. He said, and these are Ike's words, if the Russians can fire a thousand a day at us, and we can fire a thousand a day at them, then I personally would want to take off for the Argentine. We can't fight that kind of war. Then, in a fit of speculative anxiety, Eisenhower asked, how much force it would take to knock the planet off its axis. A prescient worry considering the film The Day the Earth Caught Fire with just that premise wouldn't come out until 1961. Perhaps musing on the possibility of such a scenario, or maybe the ease of accomplishing the task, Dr. Willard Libby of the Atomic Energy Commission said, there's really no theoretical limit to the size of a hydrogen bomb. Eisenhower said to this, We will finally get destruction of such magnitude that you can't talk about defense. And then he went on imagining more apocalyptic scenarios and asked how much it would take to make the Earth radioactive. Dr. Libby replied, a thousand megatons would be close to the tolerance, Mr. President. Eisenhower closed the meeting with an assessment that's always stuck with me. It's a sort of shorthand for every inane and maybe insane choice made during the Cold War that brought us closer and closer to doom. He said to the room, We will soon get so far along in these scientific things that we get to the point where no one can win. Then there will be no use in talking much more. All life will lose its meaning. But maybe we're not that badly off yet. So let's go on. Eisenhower's thoughts on this remind me of a confounding, but maybe very true line in the afterword to Robert Kennedy's 1968 memoir of the Cuban Missile Crisis, 13 Days. The afterword is by Richard Newstead and Graham Allison, and they write, In a world of mutual superiority, neither nation can win a nuclear war, but each must be willing to risk losing in order to be able to preserve certain values, the leaders must be willing not to choose destruction, but nonetheless to choose the risk of destruction. 
to paraphrase Carl Sagan's more colloquial description. Two men standing in a room, knee-deep in gasoline, arguing about who has more matches. But one of the hardest parts of Cold War history to understand and accept is that to survive, to go on, we had to stand in that gasoline and argue about those matches. And what the net evaluation offered was a story about how the other guy was about to set the room on fire. So let's go on. Next time on the Cold War Vault. This episode was written and produced by Dr. DJ Kinney. That's me. This week's music by Ryan Anderson and Rest You Sleeping Giant. Follow The Vault on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault and check out the website for links and show notes at coldwarvault.com. I will see you next time. <laughs>